This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, we have an interview with Dr. Victoria Arbor, focusing on ankylosaurs. Garrett's favorite. (laughs) Yep. We have the dinosaur of the day, homolocephaly. Also known as prenocephaly. Yeah, it's one of these, is one a juvenile situations. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news. Before we jump into that, though, we just want to give a big shout out to our patrons on Patreon. Thank you so much. Pledge now at patreon.com slash I know Dino. Yeah, and that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N is how you spell Patreon. So jumping right into the news, there's a new study that kind of looked at how dinosaurs looked depending on their size. And when you think of a Dilophosaurus, you probably think of the head crest that it had, and hopefully not about the frill that it probably didn't have. (laughs) And a group of researchers set out to figure out how skull ornamentation might have been linked to dinosaur evolution. So Dilophosaurus was actually pretty big. It was a lot bigger than the one in Jurassic Park. It was one of the biggest predators in that in its time, which was pretty earlier in the dinosaur rain. (laughs) But interestingly, the researchers found that dinosaurs that had crests or horns on their heads, like Dilophosaurus, or to a lesser extent T-Rex, grew to larger sizes than dinosaurs that didn't have skull ornamentation. So they looked at Manoraptorans, which are the likely ancestors of birds, and other theropods, including Tyrannosaurs, and they found pretty consistent results. So the results were especially significant at the extremes, with 20 out of the 22 largest theropod dinosaurs showing some sort of skull ornamentation. Meanwhile, they didn't see any skull ornamentation on dinosaurs under 36 kilograms. So that kind of shows you the extremes and how the ornamentation worked out. But you might think, what about those other two large theropod dinosaurs? The researchers believe that maybe they used feathers for display instead of crests or horns on their head. And then the lead author Gates said in a fizz.org article, quote, something about their world clearly favored bling and big bods, <laughs> quote. So basically he's saying that it's hard to say if these are causative or if it's really just a correlation is all we can tell right now that they had a lot of ornamentation and they tended to get really big. But it's definitely interesting that these bigger ones had more bone ornamentation, I guess you'd call it skeletal ornamentation. Just go with bling. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, the smaller ones might have had bling too, but it could have been things like feathers. Wasn't flashy enough. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think feathers are probably more exciting, but maybe they don't fossilize but well, so it's hard. Millions to tell. of years later, yeah. <laughs> Next, Aramanga Natural History Museum is raising money via the crowdfunding platform Chuffed to 3D print replica dinosaur legs of Cooper, which is the titanosaur that was discovered there in 2007. This is according to ABC. Cooper is about 98 and a half feet or 30 meters long. And we've talked about this museum before and how it only opened in March in Queensland, Australia in the outback. The museum has helped out its town during a long drought by providing jobs and so now their goal is to raise $40,000 to get the bones 3D printed by a company in Sydney, and the hope is to reach that goal by the end of the year. And we'll post a link to Chuffed on our blog, so if you feel like donating. Cool. Next, there's a lot of people who make videos, but Jack Lewis, who's a British firefighter, specializes in dinosaur impressions. He's got two videos, one where he acts like a T-Rex and one where he acts like a velociraptor. So what he does is he walks around like the dinosaurs. He actually does a really good job mimicking them. And his sounds are spot on, at least compared to Jurassic Park dinosaurs, which is also impressive. Because if you think about the number of animal sounds they mix to make those sounds, and then this guy's just doing it. Yeah. And as the velociraptor, he jumps up onto the table and chirps to his fellow velociraptors. It's very entertaining. So we'll be posting a link on our blog. Next, thanks to Matt, who shared this one with us via Twitter. According to North Devon Journal, there's a sculpture of a naked woman riding a 19-foot Struthiomimus. Andrew Sinclair created the sculpture, which is worth 50,000 pounds, and was recently moved to the McInnes Golf and Country Club in Wales so it could be on a, a TV show and celebrate the club's 10th anniversary. <laughs> the sculpture is known as the Prehysteric Sculpture, Apparently, Andrew and his sculpture school, which he runs, are not allowed to say which TV show the dinosaur will appear on, so we'll have to keep an eye out. Yeah, I'm guessing it's probably on the BBC, though, based on... Being in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. But still. Thanks to Patrick for sharing this with us on Facebook. There's a new set of Lego Jurassic World shorts on YouTube, and it's titled Lego Jurassic World The Indominus Escape. I don't want to spoil any of the plot, but it's pretty funny. They're on YouTube as five short videos, which combine to make about a 24-minute long story. Everything looks pretty much the same as the LEGO Jurassic World video game, but the voices are different from the film and the game. It's got that same slapstick-style comedy that LEGO always has, and obviously lots of LEGO dinosaurs. So if you're into either of those things, check out the link in our show notes on inodino.com. I'm into those things. Yep. All those things. <laughs> you sure are. <laughs> I'm into some of those things. I love the Lego slapstick comedy. It can be pretty funny. <laughs> it's very whimsical. Yeah. Next, thanks to Phil, who shared this one with us via Twitter. Tapate Driftwood Creations showed a sneak peek of a couple raptors that will be going on display at an event at the Auckland Botanical Gardens in November. During the event, attendees will have the opportunity to buy the raptors, though there's no public details, at least that I could find, about how much it costs and the size of the raptors. Greg Maddox is a sculpture artist who made these raptors, and he uses driftwood to sculpt animals. We'll post a link on our blog so you can see the picture. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. I like the idea of using driftwood to sculpt dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And next, thanks to Patrick, who shared this one with us via Facebook, 2000 AD did a cover reveal on Facebook of Prague 2001, and the cover has a giant T-Rex that looks like it's about to eat a group of fighters, and these fighters mostly look like cowboys. 
There were a couple other ones. We're not cowboys, but they're silhouettes, so it's hard to say what they are. We're not too familiar with the series, but the cover looks intense, pretty much black and white and awesome. And Prague 2001 came out on October 5th. If you want to check it out, we'll post the link. And lastly in the news, we have more Jurassic World stuff going on, as per usual. Apparently, Colin Trevorrow won't be directing Jurassic World 2 because he's busy with Star Wars Episode 9, but instead it will be directed by Juan Antonio Bayona, who is known for a few horror movies, and apparently the plot of Jurassic World 2 works well with his skill set, meaning horror. <laughs> So we're expecting to see a scarier movie, and it's also supposed to focus less on the militarized dinosaurs, and will probably have less of a fast-paced action sort of style, and instead have more suspense. And Trevorrow has also said that there may be some new animatronic dinosaurs in Jurassic World 2, since that's more of Bayona's style, and it fits better with the storyline that they've crafted, so they've kind of built it around his skill set a little bit. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Yeah, it should be a pretty intense monster movie, it sounds like. Yeah. Now I'm really expecting everybody to have, like, little baby dinosaurs in their house, and then they all get attacked. Oh, <laughs> we'll see. But, yeah, like iRobot style, where they all, all the robots turn on them. But this time it's cuddly dinosaurs. Not so cuddly if they're <laughs> turning on you. That's true. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now let's jump into our interview with Victoria Arbor. 
Victoria Arbor is a postdoctoral fellow at the Royal Ontario Museum slash University of Toronto in Canada, and she's one of the world's leading experts on ankylosaurs, which is why I really wanted to talk to her. So personally, my favorite dinosaur is ankylosaurus. Is that your favorite dinosaur too, or do you like a different ankylosaur better? It's hard to decide because I liked a lot of them a lot. But Ankylosaurus is definitely cool. It's definitely one of my favorite of the Ankylosaurs. Yeah, I'd be hard-pressed to pick a, a very favorite one because I can rattle off like cool things about a whole bunch of different ones. <laughs> very cool. Yeah, your bio on the University of Alberta says that you've identified four new species of Ankylosaurs before you got your PhD. Is that true? That seems too incredible to be Oh, possible. um... <laughs> Well, it's, it's kind of true, although maybe I need to update some of those things. So one of the projects that I worked on while I was a PhD student at the University of Alberta was taking a look at the diversity of ankylosaurs in Alberta, especially, but sort of broadly in North America and Mongolia. And one of the ankylosaurs that's one of the best known ankylosaurs is called Euloplocephalus. It might not be a really easy name to say, but most ankylosaur toys are actually Euloplocephalus, not Ankylosaurus. So it's like a really common one to see reconstructed, but they often just call it Ankylosaurus instead, even though they are different animals. But I can't really blame them because it's not a really easy name to say. So this is one of the dinosaurs that, or one of the Ankylosaurs that we have the most specimens for, but it also has like a really long stratigraphic range. So it has sort of a long like time range that it was found in. And the more that we learn about uh, Alberta dinosaurs in particular, the more that we know that they tend to have relatively restricted stratigraphic ranges. So we find them sometimes just in one part of a geologic formation, and not very often do we find them in more than one geologic formation within Alberta. So that's pretty cool. So I took a look at whether or not all of these different specimens that we were calling Euloplocephalus actually were all one species, because there was some variation, and I wanted to know whether or not that was just like normal variation you see within a species or whether or not it maybe had growth or sexual dimorphism or even just squishing during fossilization. Mm -hmm. So some of the work that I did actually sort of, I didn't name new species, but I resurrected old species that had been lumped in with Euloplocephalus. Okay. Um, so there actually had been a couple of different species named from Alberta. And back in the 1970s, uh, another really prominent ankylosaur researcher, Walter Coombs, decided that probably all of those represented one species. But now with this new framework of looking at dinosaur species richness in Alberta, I was able to find that we had actually four different species had been lumped in with Euloplocephalus. So that was really fun. So we had an animal called Dioplosaurus, which is represented by a pretty good skeleton at the Royal Ontario Museum, and it has a really skinny tail club. Hmm. Anodontosaurus, which is found in younger sediments than most of the Euloplocephalus specimens that are found in Dinosaur National Park and has a really cool pointed axe-like tail club. And Scolosaurus, which is known from a really great skeleton that's on display at the British Museum of Natural History that has skin impressions and all of its osteoderms in place, which is really cool. And it's also known from specimens from Montana. So it's one of the few that kind of crosses the Alberta-Montana border. So yeah, so that, so I didn't get to name those new ones because they already had names, but I did get to show that they actually were distinct and that we actually had a much greater diversity of ankylosaurs, and that not all of the variation that we saw in Alberta was just like intra-specific variation, that it really was different species. So that was a really fun project to work on. 
Yeah, that sounds really cool. So when you're doing that kind of research, where did you come up with the old species names? Were they all those one those specific ones had been previously identified with different species names and then lumped back together under the same yeah. species? Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. We don't really talk about sort of synonymies and resurrecting old names because it's it's easier to talk about new names, mm-hmm. um, like identifying a new species. But back when a lot of Alberta dinosaurs were being named, it sort of was like every new specimen got a new name. <laughs> and then as people found more and more specimens, they would look at things and be like, ooh, I'm not really sure that these are all that different. You know, there's a lot of variation. We can't have like 30 different species of ankylosaurs mm-hmm. in like 2 million years in Alberta. So maybe all of these are really just one species. But like I said, now that we've sort of got like a new framework for how we think about species and how we understand their distribution in Alberta, we have a much better sense of um, that there's kind of like different like cohorts of dinosaurs. There's different sort of groups that get found together at the same time, and then they kind of shift and get a new group of dinosaurs, which is pretty cool. Gotcha. So it's a little bit of splitting after a whole bunch of lumping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Taxonomy is really fun. Um, I really like doing it. I like figuring out what species you have. Um, But it's always changing, too, because new specimens can give you new information that make you look at things in a new light. So I think it's one of these things that's always a little bit in flux, even though um, you kind of want it to stay stable as much as possible. Yeah. And I think at that level where you're looking at whether they're different species is a little bit easier than the whole, like, should they be in the same genus or not? I've been reading a bunch about that, and that is such a mess trying to define what a genus is. Yeah, it's really tricky. So what I did in my project was I brought back all the old genera, all the old genus names, because I didn't want to make something really complicated called new combinations, where you like take a new genus name and take an old species name and put them together and make sort of like a whole like hybrid name out mm-hmm. of everything. Mm-hmm. And the definition, you know, what a genus is, is a little bit flexible and especially different, different taxonomists working on like very different groups will have sort of different concepts of what makes a genus versus a species. So if you work on beetles, your idea of the amount of differences that you need to call something a different genus rather than a different species is quite different from what dinosaur paleontologists use. Um, But that's okay. Everybody sort of understands that there's a little bit of flexibility in there and that it's not really a hard and set rule. So the main thing is that we try to be consistent within our own groups mm-hmm. and just kind of recognize the work that we're, we're all doing together. Nice. So as far as when you're saying an ankylosaur, that's actually a level up from a genus, right? Is that like a... Yeah, it's actually a couple levels up from a <laughs> okay. genus depending on uh, how many levels you like to recognize. So one of the things, uh, so ankylosaurs are uh, a pretty big group of dinosaurs. They're not like the biggest group. They're not as quite as diverse as, say, like the the ornithopods, the, the things that include like duckbill dinosaurs and iguanodons and all kinds of interesting creatures like that. But they are pretty diverse, and they kind of have two main groups. Uh, there's one group that's called the nodosaurid ankylosaurs, mm-hmm. and that group never evolves a tail club, that kind of cool, like, axe structure on the end of their tail but they often have like really big shoulder spikes um they keep the sort of long snout that early ankylosaurs had and they're pretty cool animals in their own right as well uh the other main group are the ankylosaurids Uh, those are the ones that i've spent most of my time with and that's the group that eventually evolved a tail club Um, they tend to have sort of a squash like a squashed snout 
a more sort of bulldog kind of face. They don't have as long a snout as nodosaurids. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of like the two main groups. And most of the ones that I've worked on are in that tail club group. Cool. So speaking of tail club evolution, I read your paper on the tail evolution, and it's one of my favorite papers. And you talk about how they went from a flexible tail in early ankylosaurs, and they got a stiff tail a little bit later with some fused vertebra or vertebrae. And then you had the club eventually forming with osteoderms at the end of the tail. So I was kind of curious when I was reading this, what the just how useful having just the stiff tail without the osteoderms on it would be would it be kind of like having a bat or something on a tail or yeah that's that's how i like to picture it to me that's one of the most interesting questions is that we seem in the fossil record to have this pattern like you said where the tail becomes stiff well before they get like a really large ball of bone at the tip of their tail they have osteoderms that go down the tail um but they probably like tapered all the way down to the tip and then only much later do they get that sort of huge like massive ball of osteoderm at the mm-hmm. end. So I kind of picture uh, having just the handle, sort of the handle of the axe, the handle of the tail club, is a bit like having a baseball bat on the end of your tail. So maybe it's not quite as effective a weapon as having that full axe head on it. But, you know, if someone's chasing you around with an axe or chasing you around with a baseball bat, you're going to probably run away from both of those things, even if, like, a baseball bat can't, like, chop your leg off or something. <laughs> I guess not to be too grim there, but I st- I don't want someone to like smash a baseball bat. So yeah, so I think it could have functioned like that. I haven't done any biomechanical studies of uh, what an ankylosaur tail with no sort of knob of bone at the end, uh, how it would function. But I think that's a really cool area that uh, we could look at in the future and try to understand sort of like the the function and biomechanics of uh, sort of these half tail clubs. Yeah, because you you did write a paper about the biomechanics of a tail with the club, right? And you kind of showed that. That's right. What was the the conclusion you had there? I forget exactly what Uh, you learned. So what I was trying to test in, I have sort of a pair of papers, one that where I do some mathematical modeling to see how fast and hard an ankylosaur can swing its tail. And then I took that information and used finite element analysis which is like a special engineering technique where you can apply force to a digital model of whatever you want and see what happens to it when you, say, smash it into something. Mm -hmm. And so what I wanted to know was whether or not ankylosaurs, uh, or ankylosaurids specifically, could even like wield their tail clubs with any sort of significant amount of force. And then more importantly, whether or not they could withstand that estimated force without breaking. Because if they can swing it really fast and hard, but then it breaks as soon as it touches something, probably they would not have used their tail clubs in that way because that seems like poor design. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the, the, the thing that I did was I also modeled sort of a range of assumptions. So it's, it's really tough in some ways to do some of these biomechanical analyses because we don't have like the muscles and the soft tissues that really influence how animals move, especially in a tail where there's lots of different bones and lots of muscles that help move the tail in many different directions. So I used a range of different assumptions, like how much muscle there would have been on the tail, different sort of rates of muscle contraction, different like masses of bone and things like that. And we also have different sizes of tail clubs. So some tail clubs are quite small, maybe only like 15 or 20 centimeters wide, but then some are really, really massive. Um, The biggest one I think I've ever measured is about 61 centimeters wide. Wow. 
which is really big, especially when you consider like the volume represented by that as well. <laughs> they are really heavy, and I'm not totally even sure like how an animal eats something that heavy up off the ground yeah. when it's so far away from its body. I think it has a lot to do maybe with the tendons uh, that they have sort of ossified tendons that run along the tail. But I'm getting off track here. So <laughs> the question, so the, the, the thing that I wanted to know was whether or not they would break under those estimated forces that I did. And the short answer is uh, probably not. <laughs> the longer answer is it's really hard to tell sometimes. So under some of my modeling assumptions, the really big tail clubs would break under like the highest impact forces, but under the sort of more uh, conservative estimates that I did about impact speed and mass and all of those fun things, they probably could withstand it. They, the tail clubs were pretty good at dissipating the stress through the knob and through the handle of the tail club. And maybe only the very biggest ones that they hit them really hard would actually break their own tails. Hmm. So what, how fast did you think that they would be swinging these tails? Was it just like as fast as you'd need to to break something or? I think it would that? really depend. I think that for some of the really big ankylosaurids with really big tail club knobs, I think that that probably would have been like enough of a visual signal to opponents not to even approach <laughs> in the same way that like, for example, a lot of, like, heavily armored animals today, like porcupines, like, a lot of animals won't even approach those. Hmm. Um, they're just not prey, and they're not, uh, you know, bigger deer with bigger antlers kind of intimidate smaller deer with smaller antlers, and they don't even have fights because they've got a signal there, a visual <laughs> signal that says, I'm going to win. And <laughs> So I think that some of the ones with these really huge tails probably didn't actually even use them a whole lot if we kind of think about them like modern animals. And then for some of this, uh, the sort of like more reasonable sized ones, say the ones in the sort of 40 centimeter range, I'd have to look, I always forget exactly what the impact velocity and impact force exactly is, but it's it's a lot. It's enough to break bone, uh, definitely. Hmm. So if, uh, if a, an ankylosaurid tail club smashed into like a theropod ankle or maybe another ankylosaurus ribs, it definitely would have cracked that bone. That's how much force is behind them. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good measuring stick to have. If it's strong enough to break bone, you might not even go near it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, especially like thin bones like ribs and, and like ankle bones, I think would have been quite vulnerable. Yeah, I think that's actually why I like Ankylosaurus the best because it's kind of like one of those pacifist animals. Same, my <laughs> wife and co-host Sabrina uh, loves sauropods. I think for the same reason, where it's like, well, it's yeah. so big, everything just leaves it alone. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's very true. I think in particular, a lot of Ankylosaurs were probably using their tail clubs mostly against each other. Really, hmm. when we see like weapons in most modern animals, weapons are really for fighting. Uh, members of your own species. A lot of weaponry evolves uh, through sort of male-to-male combat. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, often when you need to defend a resource. So that seems to be the driving uh, sort of selective pressure in modern animals uh, that evolve weapons. It's almost always males guarding some sort of resource related to reproduction. Mm -hmm. So there's really cool research out there, especially on beetles, um, uh, scarab beetles, rhinoceros beetles, uh, where the males are defending burrows and sort of using their weapons to sort of shove other animals, like other members of that species, 
away so that they can mate with the female that's in that burrow. Yeah. So that seems to be the main reason that weapons evolve. So certainly weapons can be used to protect yourself against predators as well, but that's probably not really like the driving selective pressure behind a lot of weapons. And so I suspect that it's probably something similar with ankylosaurs, and it's something that I'm hoping to investigate in a bit more detail as I keep doing my research. So a lot of what I've been doing lately is looking at how weapons evolve in ankylosaurs and other dinosaurs and other extinct animals like glyptodons. Um, so that's been a lot of fun as well. Um, but it's tricky to tease some of these things out in extinct animals. Yeah, glyptodons. Those are those like giant armadillos with a spiky type tail club. Yeah, that's exactly right. One of the papers that I'm working on right now is taking a look at uh, what sort of things are what sort of correlations are there associated with having a tail club? So what do ankylosaurs and glyptodonts have in common that might help us understand why they evolved these really bizarre tails? Because <laughs> tail weapons are really rare. Uh, not very many animals ever really use their tails in combat, especially in modern animals. And there aren't really any modern animals that have like specialized weaponry on their tails. So something like a tail club, or say like the spikes on stegosaur tail. So it's really only in a couple of things and they're all extinct. So that's a, makes it a sort of fun challenge to try to figure out like what's driving like tail weapon evolution and what sort of led to this very similar structure in these two totally unrelated groups of animals. Um, Cause of course, like you said, glyptodonts are, uh, they're just big armadillos. They're just really big, weird armadillos. Basically. Weird armadillos that like have inflexible carapaces and short skulls and they're herbivorous and, but they're just, they're just giant armadillos and they evolve these really weird tails that are similar to ankylosaur tails, even though they sort of do their tail clubs in a slightly different way. It's still a really similar structure um, in these two totally different groups of animals. Yeah. Do you have any opinions on why more animals don't have these tail defense mechanisms? Yeah, so this is still research that's kind of in progress, so it might change a little bit as I finish it up. But some of the things that seem to be uh, sort of statistically significant for having a tail club that seem to be correlated with it and need to be there first in order to have a tail club are things like being really big and armored. So that's probably not surprising, but those things seem to need to be in place first uh, before tail weaponry can evolve. And today, we don't really have any big armored animals. Yeah, There are armored animals out there, like armadillos and turtles, uh, but none of them really get to sort of truly gigantic sizes. And so that might be like a major reason that we don't have tail clubs or other tail weaponry around today, because we just don't have like big armored animals. Interesting. Like at all. <laughs> are there more ankylosaurids or are ankylosaurids generally bigger than nodosaurids? No, actually, I if I had to hazard a guess, and I need to double check this, but I, I think that nodosaurids actually are often a little bit bigger than ankylosaurids. Oh, interesting. But they're all really big. So yeah, <laughs> they're sort true. of like splitting hairs a little bit there, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, so the very biggest ankylosaur ever, I'm pretty sure is Ankylosaurus, out of all Ankylosaurus. It's a really big animal. You know, it, it just has a huge head, and it probably had a huge body as well, though we don't have as many skeletons of it. Mm -hmm. But some of the notosaurids that we find in the late Cretaceous, uh, like Edmontonia, 
are also really big animals, and I think they're probably at least a little bit bigger than the ankylosaurids that lived at the same time, things like Eulocalcephalus. Hmm. Yeah, so if I had to guess, I would say that notosaurids might sort of edge out most ankylosaurids, except ankylosaurus. Okay, that's interesting. Is there, you mentioned a little bit about the keeping the tail off the ground. I've noticed that recreations of ankylosaurs or whatever you, you know, articulations mm-hmm. have been presenting the tail like slowly higher and higher off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite illustrations of ankylosaurs are when ankylosaurids are shown with their tail like in a scorpion position. Oh, nice. Like, over their body, like, booping like a tyrannosaur on the face or something. <laughs> I have some really, I have a really, really funny collection of images of ankylosaurs fighting <laughs> other animals in really weird ways that don't really make any sense. But, yeah, so I'm not sure if they, they get higher. I think ankylosaurs are, are really interesting because, yeah, like, the tail is really heavy, and it's heavy far away from your body. So if you think about if you ever do like weights or anything and you try like holding even just, well, I've maybe this is just me, but if I just hold like a 15 pound weight, like away from my body, like out to the side, I like can't do it for very long. I don't think because it's alone. hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. That's good. So it's, it's really hard. I can do like one and then I'm like, Oh God. My arm's, like falling off. So yeah. So it, it takes a lot more like muscular energy for us to hold a heavy weight, like farther away from our body. And it kind of makes you wonder, is it the same thing in an ankylosaur tail? Because these tail club knobs are really heavy and their tails are pretty long. Um, not as long as like a sauropod tail, but they don't have like even really like, you know, ceratopsians have kind of short tails and ankylosaurs still had like proportionately long tails. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I think might be helping a little bit with them not having to use like muscular power to keep the tail off the ground is this really intricate series of ossified tendons that run along the tail club. So ossified tendons are Tendons, like we have in our body, but they become ossified like bone. Um, so a good example of something like that is in turkeys. This is great because in Canada, we're having Thanksgiving this weekend. Nice. But uh, in turkeys, if you ever, or in like uh, chickens, when you eat the sort of drumstick piece, and there's always that like really thin, like toothpick bone in there, part of that is an ossified tendon. Hmm. So... And I think it's all, oh no, sorry, that's part of the, that's the fibula really reduced, but there are ossified tendons in turkey legs as, and a lot of bird legs, actually. So, yeah, so ossified tendons are something that we find in a lot of dinosaurs, especially a lot of herbivorous dinosaurs, but usually they're more sort of like over the back and over the front of the tail. And uh, in ankylosaurs, they're all way down at the tip of the tail um, and running along that stiff part of the tail, the tail club handle. So I think that what's probably happening is the ankylosaur uses sort of like muscles to keep the tail in the front up off the ground, but then it's probably uh, relying at least a little bit on those ossified tendons to keep the tail from dragging like really heavily on the ground, and maybe also using it uh, a little bit in terms of swinging the tail from side to side, because Mm -hmm. the ossified tendons can sort of store elastic energy as well. And that's something that's a little bit harder to model when you're doing sort of like mathematical modeling your tail club. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the ossified tendons probably play a pretty key role, although it's a little bit harder to actually like test that and study it in a meaningful way. Hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I figured there had to be some kind of internal structure. I have a background in engineering, so I like I'm always <laughs> looking yeah, yeah. at things, imagining the stresses and forces involved. Right. And yeah, you, that's you'd like doing this kind of work. Then it's really fun. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So it's a. Uh... 
Yeah, I also am not totally opposed to the idea of ankylosaurids maybe having their tail club touching the ground at least sometimes. Hmm. Uh, we don't have any evidence for that, uh, and although there are ankylosaur trackways, they're probably mostly notosaurids, or at least ankylosaurs without tail clubs, and they don't drag their tails. We don't see tail drag marks in notosaurid trackways, so it's a little bit up in the air whether or not ankylosaurids would have done that, but... I don't think it's too crazy that they might have at least, like, rested them on the ground sometimes. <laughs> Again, because they're, like, pretty heavy, and especially as they get bigger and bigger, um, you know, they might droop a little further. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. Yeah. Interesting. Why do you, just out of curiosity, why do you think more animals or dinosaurs don't have osteoderms or some kind of armor? Ooh, that's a good question. So, osteoderms are bone. Uh, and bone is really expensive to maintain in your body. Osteoderms are like special bones that form in the sort of lower level of the skin, the, the dermal layer. So that's where os so osteo means bone and dermis refers to skin. They're basically skin bones. <laughs> Humans don't really have anything like that, but it's not uncommon in other animals. So it's the same thing that uh, forms the shell of armadillos. Turtles have osteoderms oftentimes in their arms and legs, uh, but their shell is not osteoderms. It's actually their ribs. Crocodiles have osteoderms, and some lizards, like Gila monsters or Gila monsters, have um, osteoderms as well. The beaded lizards have them. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's something that we see sort of in lots of different groups, but not in every member of all of those different groups. Because again, like most mammals do not have osteoderms. So it probably has to do with the trade-offs in sort of maintaining a lot of extra bone on your body and all of the like minerals and uh, like resources that it would take to both grow those and keep them maintained. Hmm. So sort of trade-offs between the, the cost you have to put into it and the benefit that it does for you in terms of, say, like not being eaten or whatever other functions osteoderms have. Um, so osteoderms have a couple of different functions that we know of in modern animals. They do offer protection against predation, especially when you're very small. It makes sense, but there's actual evidence behind that for like certain lizards, like the thicker and more osteoderms you have, the less likely you are to be eaten. Okay. In crocodiles, uh, they seem to also have a thermoregulatory function. So they seem to have a bit of a function in both like absorbing and dissipating heat, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, because they have blood vessels in them, so that kind of makes sense. And then a paper that was published recently also shows that they act as calcium storage sites. So when crocodiles are getting ready to lay eggs, they pull calcium out of their osteoderms before they pull it out of other bones in their body. Hmm. So they can also seem to act a little bit as like calcium reservoirs for animals that lay eggs. So osteoderms probably have a lot of different purposes, and uh, in certain dinosaur groups, they probably also served as, again, visual displays. So it's hard to argue that the plates of a stegosaurus, which are osteoderms, don't have any kind of like visual signaling system <laughs> or yeah. function. Because they're just, they're so big and like flamboyant, they <laughs> surely must have some sort of like that's really, that's probably what those are for. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe some ankylosaurs are similar. So some ankylosaurs have very like flamboyant ostentatious osteoderms like huge spikes at the front of the shoulders or like large big triangular plates along the sides of the hips so those probably have a little bit of a defensive function a little bit of a thermoregulatory function maybe they're also working as calcium reserves but they might also be visual signals as well so they probably have lots of different functions 
And then it's just sort of a, a matter of like the trade-offs of any one or all of those functions combined versus, again, the energy you have to put into maintaining them. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That kind of reminds me, there was this paper, I think it was this year, that talked about these large pits that ankylosaurs would get in their osteoderms. Did you <laughs> happen to see that um, one? sure i've seen that one but ankylosaur osteoderms do often have like really weird textures they're really like bubbly and knobbly some of them seem to have pathologies in yeah. them uh but yeah some of them sometimes get these really big pits in them and uh i i think that it's really interesting i i but i haven't read the paper related to that yet okay yeah i was wondering if maybe that was part of it like there's a risk for infection that comes with osteoderms or something that would make it so that not all animals wanted them I don't know. I, I mean, osteoderms are still covered. So they're bone, but they're not like exposed bone. Yeah. So they still would have been covered by like a scale, like a, uh, a sort of like a horny, like keratin scale uh, in life. Um, not very many animals have just like straight up like exposed bone. I, I think one of the best examples is antlers, but antlers are really weird. So yeah, like they would have been covered by some sort of like horny covering. So I don't think they'd be at risk of infection like more than other parts of the body. Unless, of course, maybe they're harder to heal if they get bitten or damaged mm. or something like that. But that I am not sure of. Yeah, I think in the paper they there was some particular bacteria or something that they were guessing might have gotten into it through like mm -hmm. either a bite or some other mechanism and then it spread or something like that. Interesting. It is interesting. <laughs> yeah, that is. <laughs> yeah, it was in, I just found it, it was in the Journal of Paleopathology. Ooh, that sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think it's the only article I've ever read from that journal, but I need to check it out more often. So on a lighter note, getting away from paleopathology, I know that you helped out the group making the game Saurian on their virtual Ankylosaurus model. Yeah. Are there any features that you kind of encourage them to include or that you're particularly excited that are in their version? really excited about ankylosaurus because i think that together we came up with like the best most accurate reconstruction of it that's out there today um it was really nice working with them because the first draft they sent me um i had a lot of comments about and they were totally willing to like and like not because they had done a bad job just it's hard because there's not a lot of information out there yeah. even though ankylosaurus is such a household name there isn't a lot of information out there. There's a couple of papers, uh, but there aren't like skeletons in museums to go look at. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had a lot of comments and they were really great about just running with it. And we sort of totally retooled it, like gave it a whole new sort of osteoderm arrangement, like new interpretations. So I'm really excited because I think it just looks great. I think it looks like a real animal, not like some kind of like mudge together monstrosity that ankylosaurs sometimes look like because they're hard to interpret and, they don't really look like anything around today, so it's kind of hard to, like, they're not, like, intuitive animals <laughs> to reconstruct. Mm -hmm. And the osteoderms are a lot of work for artists to work on. So, yeah, so I'm really excited about that. And then it also was voted one of the new playable characters. So after they've released the sort of first release of the game, it's going to be the next one that becomes one of the sort of characters you can play from a baby up to an adult. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited to be working with them on sort of taking what I know about ankylosaur behavior and growth in general and applying that to make sort of like a cool story for ankylosaurus. So nice. I'm really looking forward to it. 
Yeah, me too. I voted for Ankylosaurus oh, with right. our Kickstarter vote. <laughs> oh, nice. I did too. Excellent. <laughs> uh, but I'm probably a bit biased. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's going to be really fun. And I think it, I, I'm actually not someone who plays a lot of video games because I tend to get like very motion sick from a lot of like, mm. especially like 3D video games. But I've been really excited to work on this and sort of try this new medium of uh, scientific storytelling. Because it's a little bit different than, say, like a television documentary or even like a university course, because the players get to make decisions about what they're doing as those dinosaur characters. So I think it's a really neat way to get people sort of more immersed in the science behind dinosaur research as it is today. And it's just like a cool medium to be helping out with. So I'm looking forward to it. Definitely. It's too bad that you say you get motion sick because they are going to make a VR version, too. (laughs) I definitely will not be able to play that one. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> <It could be. laughs> but I'm looking forward to trying this one out, and I might just have to do it in little bits. But I, I think it's going to be really good. I, I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I like the colors that they chose too. Or did did you have any impact on the orange and brown theme that they? Kind yeah, of a little bit. So they came up with a couple of different like alternative options, and then asked for my feedback on them. And yeah, I I like going with sort of a brightly colored ankylosaur. Um, I, I sort of like the sort of high contrast that like it's sort of dark, but then it's got these like bright patches mm-hmm. on the rest of the body. So I think that looks pretty cool. Uh, I, I I wanted to move us away from like brown ankylosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't necessarily need to be like neon colors, but I, I think it's they're real animals, and you know animals have different kinds of color patterns based on behaviors and environment and all kinds of things. So. Yeah, why not have a nice, colorful ankylosaur? Yeah, and especially when you mention the porcupine analogy, if animals are just going to avoid it because they recognize it as something you can't really mess with, it makes perfect sense for it to be brightly colored because then, you know, you get the mating display to go along with it. Right, and yeah, a lot of animals use, like, warning coloration or at least warning patterns, Mm -hmm. um, sort of bright contrasting patterns uh, to sort of indicate danger. So, yeah, I mean, we I, we don't really have any evidence for this in ankylosaurs, but I think it seems pretty plausible and reasonable. Yeah, and, and nicer than just having sort of like a regular, like, dirt brown ankylosaurs. <laughs> yeah. so. Or green, like a right. lot of depictions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm sure some were green and like, that's fine. But they, yeah, a lot of <laughs> a lot of ankylosaur art doesn't sort of portray ankylosaurs in a very, like, favorable light. <laughs> They're often, like, just kind of standing there, not looking particularly smart. Yeah. Or falling off cliffs is a thing that keeps happening also in ankylosaur art. So I have, like, multiple examples of ankylosaurs just, like, falling off of hills. And I'm like, oh, man. They're not that stupid. Yeah. I mean, they're probably not, like, super smart animals, but they probably could avoid falling off of cliffs, like, some of the time. Yeah. They have a low center of mass. They'd be good at, like, not falling. Right. Yeah, it's just, like, a funny thing that keeps showing up. I don't really think I've seen that with other dinosaurs very often. So it's just, like, a weird, I don't know, it's just a weird thing. Weird thing about ankylosaurs. That is weird. Cool. So just as, like, a kind of final researchy question, is there anything else that you're excited about that you're researching or looking forward to? really cool things on the go that I can't really totally talk about yet, but okay. I hope that any listeners will stay tuned for cool ankylosaur stuff in the next couple of years. I just started a new postdoc at the Royal Ontario Museum. I was previously at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, 
Mm-hmm. So I have some really cool things I'm finishing up there related to weapons research uh, and how dinosaurs evolved weapons. And some of my focus at the Royal Ontario Museum is going to be a bit more on like patterns in dinosaur biogeography. So looking at ankylosaurs, but also looking at like groups besides ankylosaurs and sort of understanding like how sea level and climate and land bridges and different things like that influenced how they dispersed between North America and Asia during the Mesozoic period. And I think that's going to be really cool because I think we're going to be able to learn some really interesting things about what sort of like environmental and biological factors influence broad scale migrations between continents. Hmm. So I think that's going to be really cool too. Does that tie into your research about the ankylosaurs swimming? Yes, a little bit. Uh, I hadn't totally decided to take this direction when I wrote that paper, but that paper sort of gave me a good impetus to sort of further investigate some of these things. So um, in that paper, I had taken a look at a pattern that had been noted by other paleontologists before that notosaurid ankylosaurs seem to wind up in marine sediments more than ankylosaurid ankylosaurs. So I took another look at that, you know, with some of the new species that we've identified and new specimens and did some statistical analyses and found out that, yeah, they do wind up in marine sediments more often than in chylosaurids, but not everywhere and not always. So it, it's, it, it's mostly in North America that we see that particular pattern. And that's probably because North America keeps getting flooded by the huge Western interior seaway. So yeah, so that seaway has a really big influence on ankylosaur diversity during the Cretaceous period, because at least from the data that we have right now, it seems like North America had its sort of own like homegrown like group of ankylosaurid ankylosaurs and notosaurid uh, ankylosaurs. But the ankylosaurids actually go extinct uh, as the sea level gets really, really high in the middle of the Cretaceous. And so most of the ankylosaurids, the ones with tail clubs that are really famous from North America, like ankylosaurus and neoplocephalus, are actually Asian immigrants that came in much later and sort of recolonized North America. <laughs> so it's really interesting to see how things like sea level and hopefully we'll take a look at, say, like temperature or maybe even things related to like diet or body mass might sort of influence uh, sort of like extinction events in different clades or dispersal events in different clades. And just sort of help us understand like the pattern of dinosaur evolution in North America. And maybe we'll even learn a little bit about what's in store for us as climate changes and sea level rises nowadays. So I think it's going to be a really cool project. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I have to keep my eyes peeled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be a little while, though, because I just started, but I am excited. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for so much for talking to me. If people want to learn more about you or your research or follow you, should they go to Twitter or where should they go? Yeah, I think Twitter is probably the best place. And my Twitter handle is really simple. It's just my name. So at Victoria Arbor. Great. Yeah, you post lots of things. I think I retweeted something you posted today that I liked a lot. Oh, yay. <laughs> Part of your, what is, what do you call it? Hollow. Oh, Drawloween. Drawloween. That's what it was. Yes. Yeah. That's the fun thing that I'm doing, um, mostly just for fun, but a lot of them are winding up having dinosaurs, too. Yep. So that's been pretty fun. Yeah, and kudos on the great artwork. I liked your all of them so far, actually. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that's so nice of you. Thanks. Cool. Thanks again to Victoria for speaking with us about ankylosaurs, since they're obviously the best dinosaurs. I don't know about the best, but they are pretty cool. <laughs> They got the scutes. Yeah. 
That's true. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Homolocephaly, or also, depending on who you ask, Prenocephaly. And this was a request from Jill via Patreon, so thanks, Jill. The name Homolocephaly means even head, which is pretty funny. It's a pachycephalosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia, and it was described in 1974 by Osmolska and Marianska. There's only one species, the type species, which is Homolocephaly calathocercos, and as we said earlier, it may be a synonym and juvenile form of prenocephaly. But the homolocephaly type species is an incomplete skull and postcranial material. It had large openings on the top of the skull and a large round eye socket. Scientists described it as an adult originally, even though it had juvenile traits like a flat skull or even head. <laughs> then in 2010, Nick Longrich and others said it may just be a juvenile version of another adult pachycephalosaur. Horner and Goodwin also suggested that in 2009, and Longrich was the one who suggested it was a juvenile or subadult of prenocephaly. It was an herbivore about 6 feet or 1.8 meters long, and it had this flat, wedge-shaped skull roof, though the skull was pretty thick. And this is similar to Draco Rex and... Goyocephaly, and not similar to other adult pachycephalosaurs. It had a broad pelvis. Some paleontologists think it may have had wide hips to give live birth. Others think the wide hips helped protect organs during flank button elo. I like the idea of dinosaurs giving live birth. Me too. That'd be cool. Yeah, ever since our interview with Dave Vericchio, I've been thinking about the possibility of live birth. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Homolocephaly had long legs and was fast, and had probably had a very rigid tail. And you can see it in the game Jurassic Park Operation Genesis, where you build your own Jurassic Park. So now, moving on to Prenocephaly. The same people who described Homolocephaly described Prenocephaly in 1974, the same year. It's Marianska and Osmolska. Awfully suspicious, one might say. <laughs> And so the name Prenocephaly means sloped head. Must have had very distinct heads. Yeah. It lived in Mongolia in the late Cretaceous, and fossils found include skulls and fragmentary postcranial remains. There's three species. There's Prenocephaly prenis, Prenocephaly brevis, and Prenocephaly edmontonensis. And the type species is Prenocephaly prenis. There's another suggested synonym to Prenocephaly, in addition to homocephaly, and that's Spherotholus. Prenocephaly was an herbivore about 7.8 feet or 2.4 meters long and weighing 200 
80 pounds or 130 kilograms. Prinocephaly had a round, sloping head with a row of small, bony spikes and bumps. It was thought to have a stout body with a short neck, short forelimbs, and long legs, and this is based on other pachycephalosaurs since all that's been found in Prinocephaly is mostly skulls. Some scientists think Prinocephaly may have been an omnivore that ate plants and insects, though many think that it ate leaves and fruit. It was probably a selective browser since it had a narrower snout than other pachycephalosaurs. And pachycephalosaurs, as we've talked about a lot, may have headbutted or they may have used their domes to attract mates. Teenage or young adult pachycephalosaurs were best equipped to handle headbutting. The skulls had radiating structures that compressed, which provided cushion during a fight. And adults didn't have these structures. In June 2011, Eric Snively and Jessica M. Theodore published in PLOS One, and in this study, they compared Stegoceras and Prinocephaly skulls with headbutting mammals like elk and muskox with CT scans. They found Stegoceros and Prinocephaly domes were most similar to muskox and Dewiker. And interestingly, Stegoceros was most able to headbutt. In July 2013, Joseph E. Peterson, Colin Dishler and Nicholas Longridge published in PLOS One, Distributions of Cranial Pathologies Provide Evidence for Headbutting in Dome-Headed Dinosaurs, Pachycephalosauridae. And this team studied 109 domes from 14 species to see if there was evidence of headbutting. 22% of those domes showed evidence of osteomyelitis, which often comes from skull trauma. Because there was evidence of this, a lot of evidence of this, they concluded it was consistent with the idea of intraspecies combat. They also looked at 30 skeletons of headbutting mammals and found that, quote, comparisons with injuries in extant bovids illustrate the variation in injury and lesion distribution related to behavior and suggest that the distribution of injuries in extinct animals can therefore be similarly used to infer behavior in extinct taxa, end quote. So, a lot of evidence that Pachycephalosaurus did headbutt, which we know has been a big debate. Yeah. And a lot of that does come down to you don't know exactly what they were headbutting, if they're headbutting each other directly head to head, or if they're hitting each other in the sides or what. Well, it sounds like Peterson and his team concluded that it was them doing interspecies combat, so they were going head to head. Eh, I don't know if it's head to head, though. Because intraspecies combat could still be like flank budding or whatever. Oh, that's true. That's true. You could still have skull trauma for that. Yeah. But it's really hard to figure this stuff out just from bones. But the study is called headbutting in the name, so. Headbutting doesn't necessarily mean they're butting head to head, though. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It's tricky. It is. Those pachycephalosaurs. <laughs> So Pachycephalosauria is a clad of ornithischians, and the name means thick-headed lizards. They lived in the late Cretaceous in North America and Asia, and they were bipedal and, of course, had thick skulls. And our fun fact of the day goes back to ankylosaurs, because of course it does, since they're the best. They're not the best. I think they are. (laughs) (laughs) So ankylosaurs were the most heavily armored dinosaurs, and they weighed up to about 6 metric tons or 13,000 pounds. On the other hand, the Glyptodont Doedicarus is probably the most heavily armored animal since the Pleistocene, which was like that period 2 million years ago-ish. And they could weigh over 2 metric tons 
and over 5,000 pounds. Unfortunately, they were probably hunted to extinction about 11,000 years ago by humans in South America. Uh-oh. Yeah, they would have been really cool to see because they were about one and a half meters or 4.9 feet tall, four meters or 13 feet long, and they had a big mace-like club tail to go with their armadillo-like body armor. Wow. So it would have been quite a thing to see. They're pretty common in natural history museums and things like that since they were around until so recently. I could see why you'd want them, though. That's a lot of meat. (laughs) Yeah, it's like eating a huge turtle. Mm -hmm. Although... I think armadillos are the main place people get leprosy from. So Hmm. I wonder if glyptodonts also had leprosy. No idea. Interesting. Another fun fact. That was a little bonus. Yeah. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Again, we invite you to celebrate with us for our 100th episode. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.